Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by... Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have a very special episode for you guys today. We're having on our first member of Congress, and, and no run-of-the-mill member of Congress at that. We have on today Congressman Jim Banks, the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. But before we get to that, I want to encourage you all to go to AmericanMoment.org. You can find all the information about everything we have cooking, past episodes of the podcast, stuff on AmCanon, the interest form for Summit, uh, what our fellows look like, and everything in between. Uh, we encourage you profoundly do that and sign up for the email list. It's the box that pops up when you first get on and it'll make sure that you never miss anything, never miss an episode of the podcast or or anything else that we have cooking. It's extremely important. I'm just realizing that <laughs> I forgot to check the podcast email to see if we had reviews and questions. So yeah. I guess we're going to skip that today. But if you would like to do that, uh, leave us a five star review. Uh, you can send us a screenshot and then send us your question to podcast at AmericanMoment.org or you can leave the question itself uh, in the text of your review on Apple Podcasts. If it's four stars, we will hunt you down and laugh at you. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. Um, but please, only five star reviews. It's very helpful. Um, but today we have on a fantastic guest, uh, Congressman Jim Banks, who's the study of uh, the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. Uh, you can tell it's getting late in the day, folks. It's still only Monday. Um, but Congressman Jim Banks is a native Hoosier, uh, born and raised in Columbia City in Indiana. Uh, he earned an undergraduate degree after it turns out hopping back and forth from in and out of college from Indiana University and a master's of business administration from Grace College. Uh, he currently serves as a U.S. Navy Reserve uh, as a Supply Corps officer. Uh, he was elected in 2016, the same year that President Trump was, to represent Indiana's third congressional district and currently serves as the chairman of the Republican Study Committee for the 117th Congress. Uh, he also serves as a member of the House Committee on Armed Services, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs, the House Committee on Education. Education and Labor, and also the Ranking Committee of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Cyber, Innovative Technology, Technologies, and Information Systems. He co-chairs the House Armed Services Committee Future of Defense Task Force and sits on the Naval Academy's Board of Visitors. Along with his wife, Amanda, uh, he is parents to three daughters, Lillian, Elizabeth, and Joanne, and they are honored to call Northeast Indiana home. And we really need to replace the guy that, that, that gets to pick the word salad of a name for these committees. <laughs> like, that, they made your job reading all of those uh, very difficult. I know. It's, it's certainly quite a jumble, but... Unlike most members of Congress, Congressman Banks actually does something with all of his titles. Um, he has made a name for himself as one of the most entrepreneurial and interesting members of Congress. He's been noticed in the media for it, right and left alike. Uh, and as someone that we pay a good deal of attention to here at American Moment because he's chosen to take his bully pulpit and his platform to really push the ball forward on the issues we care about, whether it's a tough stance on immigration, whether it's renegotiating our trade policies, whether it's reevaluating our relationship with China or the role the government has to play in supporting the American family. We think that he has a lot of interesting ideas about the future of the party, and he told a bunch of uh, interesting stories on our podcast, everything from his background, and he has a pretty interesting one at that, uh, all the way to... Uh, you know, recent visit he did with President Trump up at his New Jersey uh, resort and uh, what he thinks on various issues, everything from hospital monopolies to trade to China to immigration and so on. And so we really enjoyed it and uh, we hope that you guys will too. It was a really fantastic episode. Yeah, it's it's actually really cool the way that we got connected to Congressman Banks. Uh, I have a friend 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna name check on the pod. Uh, Nick Rainieri, uh, who I went to an international high school with in Honduras. Uh, see, would have been about a decade ago. Uh, so we have known each other for quite a long time. Somehow we both ended up uh, in Washington, D.C. He ended up working for Congressman Banks and I ended up starting American Moment with Sarab and and the rest is history. So we're really grateful to Congressman Banks and his staff for, for making the time uh, to be here on the show with us today. And with that, we will go to Congressman and RSC Chairman, Congressman Jim Banks. Howdy, Congressman. Welcome on the podcast. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course, it's our pleasure. Um, feels a little bit silly doing this with a sitting member of Congress, but it's a rule of ours at this point that we always ask every guest how they got to the point where uh, where they're where they are now. So, how did you end up being a member of Congress? Why, walk us through the path of you getting interested in politics. I thought you were going to ask me how did I get here. Well, yeah, like <laughs> at this moment where I'm on your podcast, which is a big deal to me. Um, I served in the like a lot of members of Congress. Uh, have done. I served in state government before I got elected to Congress. I also served in local government. I, I The first office I was elected to was to the county council. In Indiana, the county council is is entirely a fiscal body for the county. And I did that, I did that for two years. And then I ran for a state senate position. My um, lifelong dermatologist was my state senator, so he knew me very well um, <laughs> because I had lots of pimple issues as a teenager. He knew my family. I was also the Republican county chairman in my small county outside of Fort Wayne, Indiana at the time. And um, he sort of, uh, he served in the state legislature, I think for a dozen years in the House and the Senate and was ready to hang up hang it up and and uh but surprise us we all we all thought he would run for another four-year term and he reached out to me as the county chairman encouraged me to run for the state senate position and, and and supported me when i did so i did that for i did that for six years i'm oversimplifying this story but um, i served in the state senate for six years i along the way i uh, was commissioned into the as an officer into the Navy Reserve, something that I, I had pursued for a number of years. My brother served in the Air Force. He's a county commissioner in our in our county at home, by the way. Both of my grandpas served uh, in the Army and always had this this deep passion to serve in the military. But I got to an age where I realized that if I don't if I don't do it now, if I don't if I'm not if I don't join the military now, I might not have that opportunity. So I was commissioned into the Navy Reserves. 2011, 2012 timeframe while I was a state senator. So it was somewhat of a unique situation. So I did the weekend, the one weekend a month, um, two weeks. I did, I did my training. I was a supply corps officer, S state senator. When you're a state senator in Indiana, that means that you go to the state house for a few months at the beginning of the year, but it's a part-time job. And um, about the, f the fourth year I was in the state senate, I got deployed to Afghanistan. So I deployed to Afghanistan, and um, somebody was asking me a little bit ago to tell this story. Uh, I, as a state senator, I got my orders to, that I was being deployed to Afghanistan. I went to the state senate president, and I said, look, I, um, I'm i going to be gone for, I'm sorry, I'm going to be gone for the next uh, 10 months. I can resign my position 
I could leave my position vacant, which isn't really fair to my district, and um, kind of left it at that. And the state Senate president, the chief of staff of the state Senate came back to me and said, actually, in Indiana, they uncovered this uh, little known at this point state law that says that a, a any elected official in Indiana who goes on active duty military orders can be temporarily replaced. Um, so we activated that statute, and uh, lo and behold, my wife was elected to take my place. Uh, she became the state senator while I was serving in uniform in Afghanistan. Fox and Friends and a few other outlets covered our story, so it was kind of cool to have that uh, shared experience. I was in Afghanistan. She was at the state house and in Indianapolis. And then when I when I came back and took off the uniform, it came off of active duty military orders because I was the elected state senator. The job came back to me, and then she just became uh, went back to being uh, a regular person with no title, who was a lot more powerful than me in our home. <laughs> um, she's the admiral of our home. Um, so, but but the interesting thing about that is when I got back, I ran I ran for Congress. My congressional seat opened because my predecessor ran for the Senate. And I got to Washington. The the governor at the time all this happened was Mike Pence. He was governor of Indiana. And then I come to Washington. He becomes vice president at the same time. So I come to Washington and coinciding with that. And I, I, I kid you not, every single time I saw Mike Pence when he was vice president and he and he saw my wife and I together, he would tell the entire crowd that my wife was the better <laughs> state senator. So I'm, I'm, I'm often reminded of that, how she, uh, and I'm proud of her, and I have no doubt she was the better state senator. Maybe people ask us to this day, uh, why can't she be the congresswoman? And I could send me back to Afghanistan and Amanda could be the, the congresswoman. I have no doubt she would be much better at the job than me. But all of that, a, a, a really a shortened version of how does anybody become a member of Congress? At some point, you just have to decide, you know, based on timing, oppor opportunities present themselves, God calls you to do something, you do it, you you uh, have the courage to put your name on the ballot, run for the office. You know, people, I, I've seen more uh, great people that I've met in my life who would make great members of Congress who either A, didn't put their name on the ballot because they were intimidated out of it, or they ran and they lost because of bad timing. You know, the, the joke in Washington is you you get to Congress, you pinch yourself, you look around in the on the floor of the House of Representatives and think to yourself, how did I get here? And then a couple of years later, you look around and say, how did all these other people get here? You know, I mean, that's sort of the joke. And uh, it's, it's uh, you know, some overall, I, I serve with incredible colleagues, but there are a lot of people who didn't run or ran in the wrong cycle and it's just all a matter of time. For me, it was when my my um, my state senator, who was my dermatologist, didn't run for state senate, and that presented an opportunity. And then when I, I go to Afghanistan, I go and serve my country. I come home to a situation where my my representative ran for higher office and opened up a seat that hadn't been open very many times in my lifetime. I've only had a few members of Congress from my district in my lifetime. So it's all it's all about that. I mean, yeah. having the I suppose having the courage to put your name on the ballot. I happen to happen to have come to Washington at a pretty interesting time, <laughs> right? Coinciding yeah. with President Trump and uh, the last f uh, four and a half years have been a historic period 
in American history. And I can't, I can't imagine a, maybe a couple of other, a few other periods in American history that would be more interesting to serve. But this has been a very interesting time to be a member of Congress in Washington, in Washington D.C. on Capitol Hill. I consider it a privilege every day to be able to do what I do. Walk us back even further, I guess, you know, being a county party chairman, I've, I've had the, the privilege of knowing quite a few of those, especially in a small county. It's 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 very thankless work. You only do it if you're a true believer, if you if you really care about the party. Care it's a about terrible job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, they only ever get yelled at. Um, so I, I'm curious, how do you get politically activated to begin with? What was it that really inspired you? What was the the moment of time? I guess it would have been when you were fairly young that you decided that that you were you cared enough about the way our country was led that that you would get involved at all. Yeah, I didn't grow up in a political family. My dad is a retired factory worker. He made axles all of his life. A u- pure union man. I mean, my earliest memories of my dad was working for a factory and they'd be on strike in the mid 80s and um you know, we were we were a blue collar working class family through and through. My mom was a cook at a nursing home since she was like 14 years old. Most of that time until just a few years ago was at the same nursing home. I mean, I grow up going and hanging out in the break room of the nursing home that she worked at. Miller's Mary Manor is the name of the nursing home in, in Columbia City in our hometown. She worked at a couple of other nursing homes too, but she was just a, a cook in a nursing home. So a pretty, pretty average working class blue collar family. Uh, my, my grandpa on my dad's side um, was a coal miner and my, my grandma and grandpa were true hillbillies. I mean, I see JD's book, my, the Banks family came from the same town in uh, Southeast Appalachian, Kentucky, that JD's family came from Jackson, Kentucky, Breathitt County. Uh, my dad was one of 10 boys and girls. I mean, I think he was, he was, uh, the third, uh, youngest and my, my grandma and grandpa moved to my, my small hometown I think when my dad was five years old and to for better work opportunities. And so they were your they were your quintessential, probably FDR era Democrat family. And um my I, I my my throughout my childhood, my dad my my dad my mom and dad didn't care about politics. My earliest memory of politics was the uh ninety two election and um my I remember my dad supporting um, he supported Ross Perot and, um, hated the Bushes. NAFTA was a four letter word in our house. My dad didn't get excited about politics. I mean, of course he supported me as I ran for a local office and whatnot. He didn't get excited about politics again until Donald Trump came down the escalators for him from the beginning. I thought he was crazy. So we, we came from a very, not just an apolitical family, but an anti-political family. Uh, a union, a union family. Um, I, I, in high school, I was a, I was a high school debater. Um, wasn't an athlete. I was pretty good at it. I was a state debate champion my senior year with my, my debate partner. Those were kind of the, I mean, I, when I look back, I think maybe that was the kind of the beginnings of an interest in public policy and politics. When I went to college, at Indiana University, I got involved in a small campus ministry, and the um, the congressman who represented our college town, which is Bloomington, Indiana, is affection more affectionately known as the People's Republic of Bloomington. <laughs> I mean, it is a very left wing college town. I mean, all all college towns are, but this was 
Bloomington, Indiana takes the cake. Um, my the congressman though was very conservative, so he was from Evansville, which is in the southern part of the state, but Bloomington, where the college was located, was in the northern part of the district, and he I think he he probably he must have enjoyed it too much. He he loved to come to the left wing college campus and get shouted at by college kids and I kind of admire I admired it. He comes he came and gave his testimony and spoke to the campus ministry I was a part of and at the time I wasn't involved in college Republicans, but uh through that I um gained a, an internship in his local uh, congressional office. And that was my first real entree into doing anything political. And then I then I volunteered on his campaign. Then I got involved in college Republicans. Then I left college without a degree and went to work for his campaign a couple of times. Became Then I came back to college, was college Republican president, and went back to work for his campaign still without it. It took me eight years to get a college degree. <laughs> But uh, I think everything turned out okay. But that was sort of the, that was sort of the beginnings of my interest, and you know, I, I along the way, I mean, I as I as you get older and mature and get married and have children, you, I mean, for for five or six years, I worked on on campaigns and helped others, and then I then I got a real job as as my wife and I started our family back in my hometown, and um, that and that's when I that's when I decided I'm not doing politics to make for a paycheck to work on a campaign um then then it was time to volunteer and give back and being in my in my small town nobody else wanted to be the county chairman so i kind of stepped into it i enjoyed it and um ran for the local office then the state office and then the federal office came later so it sounds like the politics of your of your family you know of your of your parents going back it's kind of the the all-American story, right? Like normal people who work normal, uh, difficult jobs, but are just trying to provide for their family. And it it seems like before Trump, this was kind of a portion of America that the Republican Party, you know, by and large ignored. I mean, they were, they were anti-union and like anti-minimum wage laws, worker protection, you know, whatever. Um, it seems like though in the long run, Trump has kind of vindicated, you know, those those sorts of policies. So to get into the question, I mean, what's your view of you asked us this when we came on your podcast, um, but what's kind of your view of uh, the party, you know, post Trump, uh, what he got right and and what kind of policies he's, you know, he had wanted to bring back into America? Well, let, let's unpack that first thought for a moment, because my, I think my family is a great case study and. American politics. Remember, my dad was excited. He had the Ross Perot sticker, excited about Ross Perot, hated the Bushes. You know, he didn't really identify himself as a as a Republican until Trump came along later. So that's sort of the bookends of, you know, his political passion as a union working man, um, retired from a factory. So, and then Trump sort Trump inspires and brings something out in him that I had not seen. You know, since since Perot, but I was I was younger then. But Trump brings something out in him that makes him makes him. Uh, I mean, he told me he's told me a few times in the last four years that he's embarrassed after watching Democrats fight with Trump and the way they treated Trump that he's he's embarrassed he ever voted for or identif- ever identified as a Democrat in his life. Which raises the question: How do we keep a voter like my dad, who's turned off by the the usual suspects in the Republican Party who have controlled our party for the last 
three decades or more. How do we how do we keep my dad and the I think tens of millions of voters that my dad represents? They're just they're just like him that Trump brought back into the Republican Party, into the Republican fold that we haven't had on our side since Ronald Reagan was president. I think that's the that's the question every Republican should be asking themselves today when we're on the cusp of winning back the majority and then hopefully winning the White House back in 2024. So walk us through where the economic agenda of uh, conservatives uh, does now and needs to vary from, say, the economic agenda that 10 years ago someone like Paul Ryan would have been advocating concretely. What are those issues? We'll take uh, maybe the best example of all is the, the big tech fight. Right when when big tech companies like Facebook become more powerful than the government that you elect, the pe- the people that you elect to represent you, and are making decisions that impact our society and your way of life, um, as a as a company rather than your governmental elected officials, um, th- then it becomes an antitrust discussion, and this is where Republicans are different today than they were under Paul Ryan. Mm-hmm. Right, I, I can remember. When I was college Republican president back in 2000, 2001, if you went to any college Republican event nationally or any any type of conservative event, it was sponsored by who? It was sponsored by Microsoft, by Google. Um, it was pre-Amazon, but it was, it was sponsored by, I mean, I remember these big tech companies sort of sponsoring these conservative events circa 2000, circa 2000, 2005, and, and that era. Fast forward to where we are today, where the the breaking up big tech and addressing the uh, addressing big tech big tech's free speech censorship of conservatives is a Republican Party base issue. So this isn't this isn't an academic exercise that people with graduate degrees understand. This is an issue that everyday men and women um, in my district who go to work and work hard every day to make ends meet who Facebook is an outlet for them to keep keep up with their friends and family members. And all of a sudden they're being either censored by Facebook or they're being threatened by people in their workplace for something that they posted online. Um, this is this all of a sudden is becoming a dominant issue where Republican Party base base voters are demanding that Republicans do something about it. It wasn't like that twenty it wasn't like that and just five years ago and in, in the in Paul Ryan's Republican Party, it wasn't like that. 20 years ago when George W. Bush or 20 years ago when George W. Bush was in the White House. So that that's where the, the more the Republican Party can be on the side of the the of regular men and women. I mean, I, th- I take a, a big it's big tech um, is a great example. Another great example is the is how powerful the the, the hospital lobby has become. OK, the, the greatest rise in healthcare costs in America today are attributed to hospital costs. Because of the the uh, the consolidations of hospital networks, they consolidate and then they build up these uh, these big hospital uh, monopolies, and they drive up the the reimbursement rates. And who's being who's being um, hurt by that? The 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 average people at home that can barely make ends meet that now are paying twice as much for a hospital bill than what they were paying before because their hospital has a monopoly in their in their area. So th- this is where Republicans have an opportunity. If we can be and, and by the way, this is a free market principle. I hate it when when we give up the free market 
label. I mean, if you're a free market conservative, you believe that monopolies are a deterrent to a free market. And um, in, in America today, we, we, have, we have monopolies across the board and from corporate America that Republicans used to bow down to. We used, Republicans five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even when we were out of power in the Clinton era, we would bow down to corporate America, to Wall Street interest, um, to Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, we were the part. We were the party of big business, right? I mean, we hate. We got called that all the time because we were the party of big business. Donald Trump changed that. Okay, the the paradigm has shifted today, where Democrats are the party of big business. Democrats are the party of big tech companies of Silicon Valley. Democrats are the ones who are bowing down to multinational corporations, and Republicans are on the side of working. Uh, men and women in America, uh, Amer working men and women in America. So that's a good thing for our party. That's a recipe for success if we embrace it in our party. And I think we're we're primed to do that. If we do that, we'll be the majority party for a long time. I think one of the things that <clears throat> Trump spoke to very well, and and you know, sounds like spoke to your dad. You know, in particular was, um, you know, kind of how the how the how big businesses are using the class system against people who are in the middle and at the bottom. Uh, I mean, they they bought off Republicans for years, you know, providing donations and sponsorships to, to you know, these conferences, uh, like you mentioned, that are, you know, just meant to provide numbers to the bottom line of, of, of their executives. And I think Trump, you know, like you said, Sarab, you know, told these people that they were getting screwed. On that note, I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, something that's been in the news lately, and I actually haven't heard like a great uh, conservative response to yet. Uh, there are some of these financial corporations uh, going out and buying uh, homes at, at, at massively inflated costs, you know, 100 to 140 uh, percent, you know, of what of what the list price is. And there have been a couple news articles, you know, in The New York Times and and other publications about uh, the inflation of the housing market and, it, and how it's kind of uh, boxing normal people out of being able to buy homes. You know, people who are recently married or trying to pay off school debt or just getting out of high school or whatever. Um, I think this is a really important place that we differentiate ourselves as conservatives from Democrats. We can't just say, you know, we're going to guarantee the low prices of housing. But what is a conservative response to these massive financial corporations, which are largely owned by foreign interests, trying to artificially inflate the housing market? Like, how do we make it easier for young people to buy homes in a conservative way? Yeah, we're, we're in trouble if Wall Street controls the housing market. Um, like they've controlled, yeah. Last other time, aspects of our last life. time Wall Street monkeyed with the real estate market, bad things happened. Yeah, it went really well. <laughs> right, and this is to a, this is a whole different uh, to a whole different degree. So, I haven't uh, Nick, I haven't given it a lot of thought, but um, but I've read the same stories that you have, and I'm questioning what what can lawmakers do about it. I mean, it does become a, as you as you pointed out, if if um, these uh, funds come in and, and purchase uh, a massive amount of homes on the market as as investments and those funds have foreign interests I mean this is this is why a lot of us are trying to tackle China's hold on Wall Street and how some of these uh, Wall Street funds are are um, propping up Chinese Communist Party 
uh, interests, whether military or related to their their rise, and how we can sort of cut off the head of the snake when it comes to that. But this is probably a, this is probably a whole nother level of, in a in a very interesting way that that more of us need to give more thought to. So uh, without sounding like I'm punting, it's an area that I that I as Republican Study Committee Chairman, I hope we can spend some time talking about and thinking of legislatively what we can do about it. Because at the end of the day, if 20 to 30 somethings are priced out of the housing market, um, that's that has a disastrous consequence down the road for the next generation to protect the American dream for opportunities for um, future generations to make an investment and work at paying it off. It's not... Owning a house isn't for everyone, and maybe one of the mistakes we've made in our society is sort of preaching that everyone should own a everyone should be able to get into the market. But when you price the market out of reach of most people, then um, there are disastrous consequences on the other end of that of that spectrum. Yeah, and on the on the topic of uh, young families, you know, this is something that that JD has talked about a lot. I I, I think he talked about it on your podcast as well. Um, and he's been called a, a white nationalist for on Twitter, uh, has been, you know, pointing out the fact that uh, people aren't having as many kids as they used to. They're not getting married at the same rates. You know, they're not um, financially capable of supporting uh, families and, and, and just for some reason are deciding to not have uh, as many kids. I really think, as I believe you do, that, that, that there should be a conservative response uh, to that again, that that's not leftist, right? It's not. It's not. Oh, we're just going to give people, you know, checks just for existing. But um, what can we be doing to to continue to be the party of not just family values, but of but of families? How can we, Hard you know, really support that? When there's no families. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And um, yeah, I think you hit hit the the uh, nail on the head. Uh, wh- how does government policy incentivize or disincentivize family uh, people getting married and having children? And that that's uh, that's a fundamental question for policymakers today. Is the as the the um, uh, average number of children is in decline? And um, you know we know families are healthier when you have a, a two parent home with with children and government should incentivize that. So is that a new way of, of thinking in the conservative movement? I don't think so. But um, leveraging government resources to support families and renew families, I mean, I, maybe maybe there are new innovative ways that we can do it. Earlier, you mentioned um, healthcare, which is, I, you were talking about the hospital monopoly specifically. And I think there is no greater example of the f- failure of the right um, then on the issue of healthcare, and sometimes, mm. and sometimes, frankly, I, I I can't help but wonder, you know, is it not a good thing that Senator McCain did his thumbs down? Because I I think that there would have been swift and long lasting punishment for the right and for the Republican Party if uh, if we just repealed Obamacare and like pulled out a Jenga cube from the bottom and let it fall and didn't have an answer, and we didn't. Um, I, I'm friends with a couple of congressmen who, uh, you know, a couple of years ago were, were talking a big game about health savings accounts. And health savings account may be great policy, but that is not the be-all, end-all of a, of a responsible policy for the Republican Party. What? How are you thinking about the health care issue? What are the problems with the American health care market? It sounds like 
monopolization of the hospital industry is one of them. Uh, and how can we begin to address it in a way that's not Medicare for all? Yeah. Uh, so w- a few years ago, I, I decided that I wanted to introduce something that no one had introduced before. And that that was cracking down on hospital monopolies. And the more I scaled back that issue, the more I realized that hospital costs are the greatest driver of increased healthcare costs. And the reason the hospital costs are growing, as I said before, is because of consolidations of hospitals and monopolies all across the board in the market. That That's my innovative solution. The Hospital Competition Act, I've introduced it three or four times since I've been in Congress. We, we keep changing it, adding to it. You would think it would be bipartisan. I mean, right? You would think that you could find Democrats who would agree that cracking down on large um, rich hospital networks who are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and and um, yet still increasing the the cost to consumers and because they own the market, right? I mean, you think the fundamental piece of legislation like that or a fundamental um, philosophy surrounding going after big hospitals would be something that a Democrat would get on board with. I could I can't find a single Democrat that was signed on to my. It was written from a perspective of this is a bipartisan. This should be something that's bipartisan. So that's that's disappointing. But the hospital lobby gives a lot of money away, pack donations across the board, Republicans and Democrats. And maybe that maybe that's why. Maybe they've done a incredible job of buying off uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle and prevent and and intimidating them out of co-sponsoring a basic bill. I haven't given up yet. I'm working on a another variation to introduce in this Congress. But overall, I mean, I, I, I where do we go from here? I don't know. I can tell you that Republican Study Committee, we have a health care task force. Um, I'm, I'm the chairman of RSC, the largest conservative caucus. We have three task forces, one on national security, one on the budget, and then one on health care. And I ask, I ask uh, Chip Roy to chair and lead the healthcare task force and we're we're begin, we're we're holding regular meetings with members by the way meeting members who come from different states different backgrounds different perspectives members who were here like I was back in 2017 when we flopped on the healthcare issue met a lot of members who weren't here and and just having conversations so we're in the beginning process of that uh house leadership Kevin McCarthy has also formed a healthcare task force. Devin Nunes is chairing it, and I've been invited to participate in that effort too. So I, hopefully that will lead to something meaningful. I, without, I'm not trying to dodge your question, but w- what we have to do right now is set the stage for when we win back the majority and when we win back the White House in 24 and we hit the ground running in January of 2025, then we know what the hell we're going to do with it. And that's that's where we failed when I was a freshman congressman in January of 2017. All the stars aligned. We we kept the majority. We had the majority in the Senate. I think at that point we have a 53 or 55 seat majority in the Senate. We had a sizable majority in the House. And then the unthinkable happened and Donald Trump is inaugurated and becomes the 45th president. Um, when you have the stars aligned, what are you going to do with it? And the healthcare fiasco was proof that Republicans weren't prepared for the moment. There's a crisis we're in the middle of right now, um, specifically um, at the border. 
Um, there is, I, 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 I think it's not uncharitable to call it like truly dystopic. Um, how are you, how are you thinking about, how are you responding to, and a lot of this comes down to the failures of the Biden administration. How are you thinking about what is going on down there and, 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 and what is our answer to it uh, as a movement? Yeah. Well, it is directly tied to January 20th and the inauguration of Joe Biden and his removal of the Remain in Mexico policy. I, I, I went to the border recently uh, with uh, Tony Gonzalez, who represents the most miles of the border of any member of Congress, happens to be Republican. He took us to the Del Rio region. We took, we led a group of Republican study committee members. I was struck by a number. I'd been to the border before. I went with Andy Biggs last summer in Arizona. And this trip was in, in Texas. So I was I was immediately struck by how, um, it, when I went to Arizona last summer, we were looking at uh, miles of constructed wall. And we were hearing from Border Patrol agents and officials at the border about how, how, how it was, it's not a silver bullet, but how the wall works and makes the, the jobs of Border Patrol agents easier, especially in drug trafficking and um, and in um, in the trafficking of uh, of people, of kids, and of, of other um, of other bad things that happen at the border at the, as a result of the activities of the cartel. So going back here a few weeks ago to Texas, immediately struck by just how night and day the situation is. Right? I mean, now it's a now it is a crisis. Whether the Democrats and the the media want to call it a crisis or not, it is a crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. Um, so immediately struck by that. I was also struck, though, by the the number of Border Patrol agents we met with in Texas a few weeks ago. Uh, we met with with uh, mayors, judges, sheriffs, local elected officials and local leaders at the border. Now, 99 percent of them were um, were uh, Latino, American Um most of them uh, first-generation American who, who became Border Patrol agents, local elected officials. Many of them were Democrats. But every single one of them said this was under control on Donald Trump's watch. And it's uh, not, uh, it's no longer under control on Joe Biden's watch. And they blame Joe Biden for it. You saw uh, the election in, um, where was it last week? McAllen, Texas. McAllen, Texas, where they elected a, Republican and a 90% Latino community, most that's mostly a Democrat community, because they're they recognize they recognize this. So this is a political issue that I think is brewing that has political repercussions for Democrats. But in the meantime, you have to ask yourself the question: Why are Democrats hell bent on not doing anything about it? Right? I mean, what what do they see? Maybe it's stating the obvious, but what what do they see happening here that causes them to completely turn a blind eye to what is clearly a humanitarian crisis to every single American that's paying attention knows that that is what it is. Why are Democrats fully willing to turn a blind eye and either either A, they hope it will go away, which it won't, or B, they want this to happen, that this is deliberate, that this is intentional on their part. And of course, the, you know, the immediate answer to that is, um, you know, the, eventually we, we grant amnesty to the, the, uh, mass number of illegals that are coming over with an open open border situation at the border today, and eventually they gain voting rights. Is that good for Democrats? 
I don't know. I mean, that's one that's one theory that um, some people obviously arrive at. Or, or is there another? Is there another reason? I mean, yeah. the 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 economic reper- the repercussions of uh, the the effect on um, on the job job market at a time when every business in my district is telling me that they have good paying jobs they can't find workers for. So this is clearly a, a situation where the Democrats are allowing this to happen and they have no interest in solving it. Yeah. So speaking of the the wall, I saw that you had. Uh the great opportunity to to meet, you know, in the capacity uh, as RSC chairman uh, with former President Donald Trump. Tell us what you talked about, you know, with with Trump and, and you know, I assume you guys talked about what the future of the party looks like. Donald Trump doesn't miss anything. Like he's here's the thing. Like he's he is he is dialed in as much as anybody. And he's reading these stories. And he called me about six or seven weeks ago. And I was um touring an army base in Texas, Fort Hood, going through a death by PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and my phone rings and it was a West Palm Beach phone number. So I'm thinking either this is a big donor that I reached out to asking for money or this is President Trump. So I answer the phone and I hear the immediately hear the voice on the other end of the line, Jim, this is your favorite president more than Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. <laughs> I love and, him so um, much. <laughs> that morning there was just, there was a profile story in Politico and about me and and he he read it, he liked it, he called me about it. But in the during the phone call he's like I want you to uh, he he had read these story, he told me he was following closely what Republican Study Committee was up to and he liked it. I think at, around that time I had written a memo that we haven't talked about a whole lot, but we've talked about the themes of it, about cementing the Republican Party as the party of the working class, which endorses the Trump agenda as the, as the future, uh, as the way forward. It's not the future, it's what we've been accustomed to for the last four years, but if you if we want to be the party of the working class moving forward, we need to make this the agenda of the Republican Party. Adopt it. Not uh, Adopt it, not, not allow a couple of loud voices in our party who want to erase Donald Trump to become the standard bearer of our party, but instead to embrace it. So he he liked that. He read he read the memo. Uh, he read these stories. He saw what Republican Study Committee was up to. He said, "I want you to. I'm leaving Mar-a-Lago. I'm going up to Bed- Bedminster, and I want you to bring your group up to visit with me." And um, you know, part of me was like thinking, "Yeah, right." You know, like he just, <laughs> he's just being nice. Yeah, right. But his his staff immediately reaches out. We pl- we planned it, and. Um, I gathered up uh, ten of my colleagues, mostly leaders in the Republican Study Committee, and we met at Bedminster last Thursday. We started at five thirty and PM. PM. <laughs> I mean, AM. Isn't he an early riser? Like it is, would work. Yeah. So we started at five thirty, and we sat around a table. He he came in. I I walked through the Republican Study Committee agenda and a couple of handouts that we brought for him. I talked about our election integrity bill, the Save Democracy Act, uh, which does a lot of things that that he especially agrees with. Voter identification for mail-in ballots, stopping um, ballot harvesting, one provision. We, we call for a mandatory uh, audit after Election Day, and we um, uh, also say that once you start counting ballots on Election Night, you can't stop. In federal election, the federal... The, the federal nexus is, is in, a, in federal elections. We we all agree that states can states run and control elections, and we shouldn't. Uh, HR one, which is the Democrat bill, does the opposite: federalizes, nationalizes elections. 
So we talked we talked about that. We talked about our policy agenda, and he was very um, dialed in on it. He asked a lot of questions about the bills that we were introducing. Um, a couple of takeaways from so we started at five thirty. At seven thirty, I was getting hungry, right? <laughs> and he had promised us dinner up on the patio of the golf club, but um, but we were still going. And he was um, he was peppering our members with questions about what was going on with, in their states about calling out names of everyone from governors and senators to state legislators in their states. The guy was just dialed in um, on what was going on politically and what was going on policy-wise. A couple of things he said that really stuck out. He said after January 20th, he went to Mar-a-Lago. He, he, by the way, he looks great. <laughs> he has been losing weight. Yeah, like He, he ten, looks ten, good. Ten, He's playing ten, a lot of golf. Right. He, shot a, he shot a 71 on Thursday, when, nice. the day that we saw him. Jeez. And he was very proud of that. He told us all about it. Yeah. Um, Did you get a chance to play golf with him? I didn't, I, and I wouldn't subject him to my bad <laughs> golf skills. But the, one of the big, the big thing that he said that I'll, that I, that I thought was uh, most uh, prescient was, he said after January twentieth, I went to Mar-a-Lago. You know, I think it's probably natural for any office holder to maybe retreat a little bit. You know, get you know, get uh, enjoy yourself, play golf, enjoy the family. But but here's what he said. He said, watching what's going on in our country right now, I feel like I have a moral duty to get back out there. And I, I at the, at at that moment, I couldn't. I one, I can't agree more. We want him out there. We want the, we want President Trump out, stumping around the country for candidates, holding the rallies and firing up the base, because there, as he put it, there's there's so much at stake. So he feels a duty to get back out there, and and I and I appreciate that. We everyone around the table encouraged him to do that. The other thing that struck me, because we we met around a table in a conference room at the golf club for two hours, then we went upstairs and had dinner um, that lasted for another two, two and a half, three hours. Um, this, so this, him inviting me up and bringing a few members for what, uh, for what, what I was skeptical of when he invited us in the beginning, which became a reality. And then I thought maybe it'll be an hour long meeting that lasts for nearly five hours was how completely selfless he was. Um, every time he turned around, someone was asking for another autograph, for a picture, to FaceTime their parents or their kids, another autograph, another picture. It went on all night long. And then you have the other people who are having dinner at the golf club, who are members of the club or guests who are having birthday parties, and he would go say hello to them. The man was just completely selfless. And it's the exact opposite of the media caricature of him. But um, everything that I observed in that, in that moment was completely selfless. And I don't know if he's ever been described that way before, but I was struck by that. The, the third thing that, is import, that was important, an important takeaway from our nearly five hours of, of time with President Trump last week was that he was entirely uh, focused on the future. You know, the the every time you open up one of the political newsletters or uh, turn on the mainstream news, it's it's trying to it's it's about the it's about the past. Donald Trump in the past, he's completely fo- and I'm not talking about running. I'm not talking about him running for president. I don't know if he does that or not. Um, and we could talk about what that looks like if you guys want to. But I'm talking about. He's focused on the future of our country and he's concerned about the future of our country. And he's also, 
he also feels a duty to get out, get back out and do something about it. Yeah. We don't live in 1960 anymore. And so I think a lot of um, Republicans and conservatives for the last 20, 30 years have been coasting on a, a type of nostalgia. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, we'll bring it back to, to this world, you know, when things were great. But we live in a fundamentally different country, a fundamentally different time. Technology has changed, society has changed, the world has changed. Um, it is a source of, of great distress for me. And, and this is a concept that was originally uh, elucidated by one of our board members and a mutual friend, Ryan Gerdusky, which is that mm. if you go to someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and you ask her, what is your vision for the country in five years, in 10 years, in 50 years, she can paint for you in extraordinarily detailed words and pictures alike. She sells posters of it. What the country under her vision looks like. Now, whether or not it would actually end up that way or, or if it would end up into a dystopia is, is a whole other question. I think we, we share an approach to that. What to you, if we are talking about looking forward, does American society look like if the perspective that you have wins out? What is the American dream of the 21st century? Yeah, I, for, for me, I go back to my, to my parents, my, my mom and dad. In the first five or six years of my life, we lived in a trailer park. Um, they did a little bit marginally better than what their parents did um, economically. They're, my mom and dad, um, I have two younger brothers. Their idea of the American dream is simply put that their three sons will grow up and do a little bit better than what they did. And um, for me, that's my American dream. I have, th I have three daughters. Pray for me. <laughs> um, we do. <laughs> they're, they're 11, uh, 9, and 8. And um, you know, the, the question that you're asking is, what kind of America do they inherit from my leadership? What type of America do they inherit from my generation? And um, you're right. We don't live in 1960, but we do live in, a, in the greatest country in the history of the world. And I want my daughters to inherit a, I want them to inherit an opportunity, an opportunity to do something, to have something more, something better, great, greater opportunity in their generation than what my generation had. And, and sadly, uh, the, we're, we're at a point in American history where that, that's more unlikely than it's ever been before uh, economically, unless we, unless we fight back with not just those on the left, but those across the political spectrum that want to inhibit uh, the economic opportunity of the next generation. And I'm talking about big tech companies. I'm talking about I'm talking about uh, the interests in this country that want to to circumvent, change our way of life, and create a um, an economy where you have you have uh, uh, companies that are more powerful than the government. And and not not to mention that that you know what I fear the most as well is for that 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 America the que the question the the fork in the road is whether or not we will be a country that is under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party or we're a country that defeats the Chinese Communist Party. That's that's what I'm concerned about. At a, at a personal level, um, op opportunity is um, it's 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 a set of options, right? It's things you can do. Um, one of the things that frustrates me a lot about the right, and I think this is becoming less the case, is 
we like to act like everyone's going to be a small business owner when in reality, like 5% of the country is going to be a small business owner. What's the, um, what's the vision for what life looks like for the 95% for, for the people who just you know, have a job, have family, like what, 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 what to you, like if our agenda is fully successful, fully implemented, what does that look like? What like, what, what, what is, what's the life look like for a regular person in the United States? Well, I, I, you know, I, I hope what that looks like is safe communities where you can, where you can go to church, where you can raise a, raise a family in a safe environment where your kids can get a, an education, not an indoctrination. Um, and, and, and then, then grow up and have, have the same types of choices that uh, previous generations have had as well. So, uh, you're, you're digging deep, but it's really simple. It's really that simple, yeah. you know, a country where it's safe to safe to raise kids where I can still go to church and, um, believe in, believe what, you know, I, I'm, when I'm taught to believe, uh, per my, per my faith and instill that in a, in a future generation. So we're, but we're drifting. So we're drifting further and further away from that. And, and, at the moment, the rise the rise of China is a direct threat to whether or not families in America will have that type of outlook in the future. Um, you're getting deep. I, it's it's our responsibility. This is an interview like no other. But. Well, actually, on, on the on the deep question, since we're already here, he asked about your kids. Um, I've talked about this on the show before. Recently engaged, I'm about to get married. Yada yada yada. I've used my my great access to this platform of podcasting and having, you know, these ideological giants on the show to ask them their number one piece of marriage advice. And traditionally I've done it after the show, <laughs> but you know, you've bragged on your wife so much. I figured you could give me a good, a good piece of, uh, of marriage advice while we're recording. Oh my gosh. Um, let's have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> you've earned it. <laughs> Um, it, I, my what my wife and I talk about all the time is it gets it gets better the longer we're married. It gets easier the longer we're married. It's never easy, but that's not advice, but it's something to keep to be aware of, right? the the long the the longer you're married for us, we've been married for don't tell her that I don't know exactly. I think sixteen years. <laughs> Hope she doesn't listen to the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> She probably. I have won. it on good authority. She doesn't listen to anything. Her husband does. <laughs> yes. uh, thanks. So sixteen years. So it just gets it gets easier. You get more patient with each other. You. It's never easy, but it gets it gets better the longer that that it goes. I remember our honeymoon uh, was terrible. Really? Where'd because you guys that's go? Why, like we went to the Dominican Republic, and this was like one of those moments where you realize we are very different. Like she's all about the beach. <laughs> I hate the beach. I want to. I want an I'm adventure. Yeah. And I remember it just being a painful um, experience. We made up for it later. Like later that, that year, we went on a epic adventure uh, to New Zealand. Like a like uh, less than a year later, just to make up for like the bad honeymoon. Like we both, it was mm -hmm. a bad honeymoon for both of us. Probably and mostly because of me, but um, we made up for it later. But you realize immediately how how different you are but um over time you've 
over time you appreciate your differences more and yeah. um instead of those being a source of conflict they can in the end they they make the marriage more interesting and provide you with the ingredients and the tools you need to be more patient with each other and with that it just keeps getting better yeah well i appreciate that um and i you know on kind of a similar note and we can let this be the last question you know i know i know you got to get out of here soon but um you strike me as one of the wiser and i don't mean older uh, (laughs) members of congress like really when when something happens on the news you're you know, your statements and what you say, you know, whether it be on Twitter or in a, in a press statement, I mean, they always come across really well measured. And I personally loved your 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 memo on the Republican Party being a working class party. I, I fully agree. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, that you kind of had the opportunity to be in this Christian leadership group on uh, campus and hear from a current member of Congress, you know, and that really influenced you. Uh, you know, with your all your knowledge and your responsibilities right now as as RSC chairman, um, what are you doing to to kind of educate the next generation of kids and 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 conservatives about the future of this country? Other than spending time with us, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> and you do like you do text us, and that's nice, and we appreciate your advice. But aside from us, I mean, what's your what well, have you been was, doing? It wasn't that long ago when. You know, I went. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was a long time ago when I was where you guys are, and I, I remember what that was like. And I, I hire a, I have a, I have the best staff on Capitol Hill, and they all, by the way, they're they're all unique and have different backgrounds and some different perspectives too. So, I and I was a. I told you before, I was a, I was a college intern in a congressional office, and that's how that's mm-hmm. how that's how all this started for me. And um, now I get to give that opportunity to a lot of people who come through. I mean, in five years, I've had dozens of interns that have come through the doors and both in my offices in the district and in Washington. But it's why, I mean, I not to, um, not to play suck up, but it's why I'm excited about what you guys are doing. I mean, mm-hmm. what you guys are building a platform to inspire a movement of younger people to get involved to give them the the uh, the the worldview training to equip them with on the so that they can better defend and understand the positions on issues the issues of the day, and then plug them in and get them activated. So I don't give a lot of thought. I don't have a necessarily a strategy on how we how I do this, but you guys are the future. Now the now the tables have turned where there were people twenty. 15, 20 years ago who were nurturing me and giving me incredible opportunities. Now I, now I have that opportunity. I mean, we have one of your fellows coming to our office and intern mm-hmm. for Republican study committee. So the more doors I can open for opportunities like that, the more, the more impact, I hope 25 years from now, um, I'll hear from a lot of people who say, Hey, you, you might not know this, but you gave me an opportunity to do something. And that led me to, where I am today. Now I'm serving in a high position in business or I'm serving in a high position in politics or in their community. And it was all because of the door that you opened for me to be a fellow or an intern or you hired me in your office. I mean, that that's a vision I hope that all of us would have. Well, 
it's one that you certainly are, are putting forward and you've been generous with your time uh, with us as well. And so um, thank you for taking the time to, to come here and, and join us for Moment of Truth today. Glad to do it. Thank you. Today we want to talk about something a little bit different. Uh, it's funny, we, we just had Congressman Banks for almost an hour and we didn't actually talk that much about the memo that he sent uh, to uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy a few months ago. In this memo, Congressman Banks lays out what he views the vision of the Republican conference and the conservative movement needs to be moving forward. And I think there's a lot to love here. It's one of the most sensible documents that I've seen out of a politician in a long time. And that word sensible is not an original insight. I think uh, our good friend of the podcast, Matthew Peterson over at the Claremont Institute and New Founding used that term because it's it's common sense. It's not radical. Um, not everyone has to be radical. It's just speaks to the truth, which is that as of today, the conservative movement and the Republican Party are a fundamentally different entity than they were 10 years ago, and that the agenda of the Republican Party must reflect that. Look, we're a 501c3 organization. We focus on ideas. We're interested in this perspective as conservatives, but it's certainly notable and touches on a lot of the priorities that we have here at American Moment. Um, he goes into everything from the reality of how the demographics of the Republican Party are changing, how it's becoming a more working class party. There's a great uh, little picture in there of how from 2010 to 2020, uh, 45% of the white working class uh, supported the Republican Party in 2010, and now 57% does, nearly a 15% change. That's real. That has electoral implications in Wisconsin, in Missouri, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in all these very swingy states. Uh, it also has implications for Florida, uh, especially because the Hispanic blue-collar population went from 23% uh, voting Republican to 36%. Um, these trends are important, and if we aren't doing right as a movement by these voters, then we aren't doing right um, in the name of, of Republican governance. And so I think there's a lot to learn here and a lot to like here and a lot to pay attention to. Well, I think the thing that's so special about uh, Congressman Banks and this memo in particular is that for a lot of members of Congress, they ascribe to this sort of belief system based on what's in the news uh, and, and you know, what certain conservative organizations tell them to think or what big donors pay them to think. Uh, but what's interesting about Congressman Banks is that this comes from his experience. You heard him talk extensively about his family, particularly his father uh, and his father's voting history and who he supported and the kinds of politics that he supported uh, throughout the years. And I think it's really telling that Congressman Banks, unlike many other members of Congress, has a very personal experience with these issues. You heard him say that NAFTA was a dirty word in his household growing up. Uh, I, I just think that's a really important distinction to make with the majority uh, of the members of Congress today. And I'm very I'm personally very glad uh, to see him leading the RSC in that particular direction. Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And, and we hope that as we start to bring on more elected officials, members of Congress, that we can start to explore these ideas with the people who are, in a lot of ways, deciding whether or not 
the realignment or this this populist nationalist revolution within the conservative movement is purely an academic question, purely for talking heads to mouth off about on podcasts like this or something that will actually be implemented. And as our mission statement says, we care a lot about implementation here at American Moment. Uh, once again, I would highly encourage you guys to rate this podcast five stars. I was at a conference a couple days ago and I ran into many of you listeners and you had not yet done so and I made you do it in front of me because you told me that you loved the podcast. And so uh, uh, to read from one review, uh, finally, a conservative podcast with great guests and the hosts aren't shills. We do our best not to be shills. So thank you very much, Mr. Best Western 69. <laughs> I was just about to read the username for you. Yeah. Yes, Mr. Best Western 69. Thank you uh, for the very positive review. <laughs> I, I really hope no one clips that out. Um, once again, always make sure to check out AmericanMoment.org for everything we have going. Sign up for our email list. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Follow us on social media at AMMoment.org. And uh, be sure to tune in next week when we'll have yet another fantastic guest and uh, more moments of truth here at American Moment. Thank you. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.